we're going to go ahead and get started. Now, remember, we're in Revelation, but Revelation comes with a lot of questions. It comes with a lot of all theories. It comes with a lot of speculation. There's a lot of theories, speculation, theories, but we want to remember that we don't have all the answers. That nobody has all the answers. There are some things that are interpretive. There are some things that are figurative and some things that are literal, right? Today, we're going to get into some pretty heavy stuff. This is not a light reading kind of book. Revelation is not really like, oh, I just want to, you know, sit in the shade and, 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 and relax and read a, read a nice book. That's not really what Revelation is. It's heavy stuff this morning. Uh, it's going to continue to be heavy. But hang in with me, because as we get closer and closer, we're getting to our ultimate victory. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray over the message. Lord, I thank you for the word this morning. Lord, I pray that it's in our hearts. Lord, that it would stay in our hearts. Lord, as we hear your words, Lord, as you speak through me, Lord, it would touch us as a body, touch us as, as believers. Lord, that we would hold on to it. Lord, that as we go through what we're going through in our culture and in our world, we would keep our eyes upon you. We thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Over the last few months, we have dissected and studied the book of Revelation together. I hope for you that it's not just informative, but transformative. My hope for you is that when we look at Revelation, we see an eye to see what is on the horizon. We see what's on the horizon and to know that as we get closer to the end, how many know God shows himself to be eternally faithful in keeping his promises for our life? God is faithful in every area and aspect of our lives. Amen? So, Revelation, heavy stuff. Last week, we looked at heaven. The week before, we looked at hell. It's, it's, those are heavy items. So, last week, at the end of chapter 16, we essentially came to the end of what we call the tribulation timeline. Or at least, the vision of the tribulation and of the judgment. So, we had the three sets of judgments. We had the seal judgments. We had the trumpet judgments. And then we had the bowl judgments. The seven years is up. Armageddon is done. And the Lord is victorious. Amen? Amen. In chapter 17, what we see is called the fall of Babylon. Now, um, I said last week, and I've said multiple times, that the language and descriptions in Revelation can be very difficult. The language used doesn't always make sense, even to the Apostle John. John the Revelator, the one who's writing down the vision. It doesn't always make sense to him, the one who is translating this vision for us, right? So how many know that we can read the Bible all day, every day, but if we can't understand what it's saying, its usefulness to us is limited? If we don't understand what the Bible's saying, its usefulness to us is limited. We have to under, be able to understand it. So, this morning I was going to entitle the message, and really it is the title of the message, called The Two Babylons. How many ever heard of a book called The Two Babylons? It's a pretty old book. Uh, 
it's not a whole lot of accurate information, but it talks about uh, the churches or the, the, the Babylons in what we'll look at in chapter 17 and 18. This week, we're going to look at chapter 17. Uh, I believe in two weeks, possibly, we're going to look at chapter 18. But what does Babylon mean? So if I was to go up to any random believer, any random Christian, and say, what does Babylon mean? Carol, how you doing? Good. She's up there in the crow's nest doing what she does. What does Babylon mean, Carol? No idea, right? And uh, Sorry, forgive me. Peg, what does Babylon mean? It's a foreign city. It is a foreign city. It was a historical city. Bobby, what does Babylon mean? Great city. That's another way to describe it. It is described as a great city. Gary, what does Babylon mean? Yeah. No, it's all, all right answers. But as Christians, when we read the Bible and we go to Babylon and then we see the figurative language and we're going to look at a woman and a beast and scarlet and all these different things, you go, what does it mean? Tim, if I ask you, what does Babylon mean? You'd be able to tell me about Babylon, the historical city, right? Do you know what else it means? Okay. Don't spoil it, but it's not good, right? It's not good stuff. So historically, Babylon is a literal city. What it represented to Israel, listen to this, is the essence of all evil. According to one commentary, it said the embodiment of cruelty, the foe of God's people, the lasting type of sin, carnality, lust, and greed. So when it speaks of Babylon, you're speaking of some bad stuff. When you think of Babylon, you're, you're speaking of some really sinful things. If we were, were to put it in today's terms, think of a city that is godless. Think of a city in the United States that is absolutely godless. It is a foe to God's people. It is filled with lust and greed. If you think of that city, some, some might say Los Angeles, Hollywood. Some might say Washington, D.C. Some may say New Orleans. Some may have another city in mind. A place where darkness and gross darkness covers the people. That is what Babylon is. That is what it represents. So, when we see the fall of Babylon in chapter 17, what we are seeing is the fall of an organized system of evil. That is what Babylon is, an organized system of evil. So in the next two chapters, 17 and 18, we are going to describe, in essence, the, there's two Babylons. One is a religious Babylon, and the other is an industrial or a Babylon of commerce. Now, we started in chapter 17 last week, but I want to go there again. I want to begin in chapter, in chapter 17, verse 1. And the way I'm going to do this is going to be very different than I have before. Here's what I would like to do. I'm going to read the first six verses. Revelation 17, and we're going to go 1 through 18. So we're going to read the entire chapter together. And then we're going to go back and look at the verses and what they mean. Because in order to understand Babylon and all the things that are involved, you want to go through it all first and then go back and kind of look at it. So this is, this is a lot of teaching today. Very little 
what we would call preaching or sermonizing, but a lot of teaching, and there's a reason for it. So we begin in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 18. It says this, Then one of the seven angels, now keep in mind that the language does get confusing, but hold on with me. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. This is John the Apostle. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, I want to stop there. Starting in verse 7, Doug, you have a microphone up there. Will you go ahead and go verse 7 through verse 12? These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of hosts and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. 
heard a description of Babylon as that great city, we hear some pretty strange language. That they will make her desolate. They will make her naked. That they will burn her with fire. Some pretty rough stuff going on. As we said last week, what John sees is astounding. John is amazed at what he sees. He's given a vision of the woman and the beast. And in all that he sees, he just stands there with amazement. I want you to think in your mind if this was being shown to you. How would you react? What would your reaction be in seeing all of this play out before you? John stands there having no idea what it means. It's a mystery to him just as it is to us, right? Now, the language is very confusing. So in order to break this down, in order to understand it, we need to understand what some of the language means. So Babylon here is an organized system of evil, but it's referring to a woman. She is the mother of harlots, is what the Bible says. That's another way of saying she is the queen of the prostitutes. Her cup is filled with abominations and filthiness. The filthiness of her fornication is the indicator that we are, what we are looking at is religious in nature. It is religious in nature. I like what one commentary says. She sits on many waters is another way of saying she is in leadership of multiple people and cultures. We see that in verse 15. A few commentaries read this. The woman pictures false religion that will dominate the world in the tribulation period. So the seven years of tribulation, there will be false religion, just like there's false religion today, right? Only think of it entirely more amped up. All this false religion is leading towards the Antichrist. She is a unification of all false, idolatrous religion. Now, when we say she, we're referring to the organized evil. We're not referring to a specific person, but we're referring to the idea or the organization. She is clothed, listen to this, in luxurious purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. She looks good. She looks wealthy. She looks like royalty, but keep in mind that despite what she looks like on the outside, the truth is she is nothing but a prostitute. She is the whore of Babylon. She is drunk or intoxicated by the blood of the saints. It means she enjoys her persecution. She enjoys the suffering of God's people. It causes her ecstasy to see us suffer. That is who she is. We see that John is looking at this woman in amazement and David Guzik says that John was amazed because this wasn't pagan persecution. We're used to pagan persecution, right? We understand pagan persecution. What, what John sees here is not that. He sees this as religious persecution. And that's an entirely different animal. This is religious persecution. This is a pseudo-church. It is thirsty for the blood of the saints. False religion is always the worst enemy of true faith. False religion is always the worst enemy of true faith. So, there has been enormous amounts of, of speculation. Uh, if you know anything about Revelation or studying end times, 
or if you've studied it to any degree, there's always an enormous amount of speculation as to what this organization is. Who is this organization? Which, which organization today could it describe? And for the most part, the majority of thought always lands on the Roman Catholic Church. Across the board, it lands on the Roman Catholic Church. Now, let me be very transparent about this. I want to be very clear with what I'm saying. There are principles and positions within the leadership and structure of the Catholic Church which can be both problematic and as well as outright in conflict with the Bible. You say, Pastor David, what do you mean by that? Let me give you an example. In addressing a prayer gathering of Christians, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, and others, the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, Pope John Paul II, told participants that their efforts of prayer were unleashing profound spiritual energies in the world, and they were bringing out a new climate of peace. The Pope pledged that the Catholic Church intends to share in and promote such ecumenical and interreligious cooperation. The Catholic Review heard this, commented on it, and said this, the unity of religion promoted by the Holy Father and approved by His Holiness the Dalai Lama is not a goal to be achieved immediately, but a day may come when the love and compassion, listen to this carefully, of both Buddha and Christ preach so eloquently will unite the world in a common effort to save humanity from senseless destruction and lead toward the light which we all believe. False religion. That is an example, a clear example of false religion. Now, in case you're not aware, that's clearly what it is. One minister said it this way, being a Christian means being a member of the body of Christ. It means being a member of the body of Christ. Not decide what building you go to on a Sunday. Not decided by what your parents went to or what your grandparents went to. Being a Christian means being a member of the body of Christ, which is accomplished by faith and trust in Jesus alone for your forgiveness of sins. It means you do not add your works to His work. Sincerity doesn't forgive sins. Membership in a church doesn't forgive sins. Doing works of penance doesn't forgive sins. Praying to Mary doesn't forgive sins. Baptism as a baby doesn't forgive sins. It doesn't equal salvation. Forgiveness is received in the faithful trust and acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You must trust Jesus, God in the flesh, for the forgiveness of sins, not trust in man-made ritual, and certainly not in Catholic saints. Come on. Certainly not in Catholic saints. You say, Pastor David, what does this mean? Does that mean Catholics aren't saved? Does that mean all Catholics aren't saved? And, and to that, I would say this. Because, I mean, listen, how many know there's great Catholics out there? Right? They have nice, nice people, great causes, good fish dinners. They have great pancake breakfast, right? All those good things. Fantastic stuff. 
to that question, I would echo the words of Tim Challies. He said this. This is important. Those within the Roman Catholic Church who have experienced salvation, and I sincerely believe there are those who have, have done so despite the church's official teaching, not because of it. They have done so despite the church's official teaching, not because of it. We have to remember this as Christians. Listen, we have to remember that regardless of how nice people are, niceness does not equal salvation. Listen, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Amen? We think, well, they're they're nice. Man, those are the nicest people. I know some of the nicest people in the world that are the most deceived people in the world. They belong to cults. They belong to false religion. Just the nicest people that you ever imagine that are incredibly deceived. I had a conversation with one just recently. Just such a nice person. He was talking about how he believed in the great spirit and the great creator and Jesus was a man, and I understand all that, but I said, well, you understand Jesus is the only way to forgiveness. We believe the road is narrow. That's a tough thing to preach in modern church, but that shouldn't be a tough thing to preach in this church, amen? We want to preach the truth of God's Word in this body of believers. Because for what I can see, we're all here as believers. Amen? False religion. Hmm. You say, Pastor David, it seems you're picking on the Catholics. I assure you I'm not. It's worth noting that this Babylon in Revelation isn't referring to a single organization, but to false religion as a whole. Babylon is referring to false religion as a whole. And listen, I know those within the Protestant churches that are preaching plenty of false gospel and are substantially more focused on culture than on Christ. They're substantially more focused on social justice than eternal salvation. One uh, influential Protestant church just this last week said this, God cares infinitely more about making sure everyone has food, shelter, and health care than whether or not you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. False religion. That is false religion. Getting back to chapter 17 of Revelation, listen, we need to understand, we need to have a clear understanding that the Babylon we see here is bigger than false Catholic teaching. It is bigger than false Protestant teaching. It will be a combination of all false religions to promote the idea of unity with the Antichrist as the figurehead. Just go along to get along. How many ever heard that before? Just, just why do you got to ruffle feathers? Why do you, why do you got to say things that offend people? We are going to promote the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this building. Amen. That is what we are called to. That is what I am called to. What else do we see here? 
If we looked at verses uh, 10, 11, and 12, uh, do me a favor, Mel. You're up there. Yeah. 10, 11, 12, it says this. Weird language. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And we come, so you must continue a short time. Verse 11 says, The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. That's confusing language. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they received authority for one hour as kings with the beast. We see a beast with seven heads. We see seven mountains. We see seven kings. We see an eighth king. We see ten horns, etc., etc., right? It's confusing stuff. Again, it's confusing and open to interpretation, but we are given some clues as to what they mean to a degree. Now, in order to af uh, avoid a lot of confusion, let me say that this language is referring to kings, rulers, and empires. Historically, some have already fallen. In fact, it says five had already fallen when, when John was being told this. So some of these have already fallen. One was in the middle of falling, and we are waiting on the start of the tribulation for the last king, who is the Antichrist, who will have under him ten horns or ten kingdoms. What that may look like is a world divided into ten regions. We've talked about this a little bit before. With ten directors or ten presidents who answer to the Antichrist. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but this is some interesting theory. We don't know all of this for sure, but of all the theories that are out there, and there's plenty, this one seems to be the most valid, right? And this is where we find importance. We don't know everything that's going to happen. We just don't know. Peg, we, have, we just don't know. I mean, we have an idea. We are given some ideas, but some things are literal and some are figurative. If we see a beast with seven heads, literally, it's going to blow people's minds. If we see something with ten horns come out of Rome, it is going to blow people's minds, right? So if it's literal, whoa. I don't think it is. I think it's more figurative, and we have to understand what that means. So we have ten horns, it means ten kingdoms. It's important to be aware of this. I don't know. How many can say, I don't know? Right? How many know it's also important to say this? Listen, I don't know it all, but I know that God has it handled. I don't have all the information. It's been studied for millennia now. And nobody has all the answers, but God's got it handled. Amen? God has it handled. What we do see is this. What is important to know is that this system of false religion will be unveiled and discovered for what it is, and then there will be judgment. We see that in verse 16. This is where we get into some of that really kind of weird, salty language here. It says this, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, they will hate the prostitute, they will make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. That's pretty, that's pretty graphic language. 
eat her flesh and burn her with fire. To, to make desolate means to make miserable. The ten horns or the ten kingdoms will see the false religion for what it is, and they will hate the harlot. Now, isn't this interesting? So about uh, it's estimated about three and a half years into the tribulation, the ten kingdoms, the ten uh, presidents, or the ten leaders of these regions will expose false religion for what it is. And they will turn on religious Babylon. I didn't say they will turn on the Antichrist. They will turn on religious Babylon. It says here, it's pretty gross, of course. It's a depiction of them turning on the false unity religious organization and tearing it down to build up a kingdom entirely ruled and worshipped under the Antichrist. So you have about three and a half years. You say, why does this happen? Three and a half years into this, they have false religion, false unity, false promises. It's okay. We can all just hold hands and love each other. Because love is love. Amen? Amen. That's the kind of nonsense that as a culture we're being brainwashed towards. Just let's just all love hands and love each other and hold hands. And you pray to your God and I'll pray to my God and we'll just we'll all be together in unity. That's what's being pushed. You'll see it more and more and more and more by those who call themselves woke, but they are sleeping. People who call themselves woke, but they are under a hypnotic trance from the enemy. It's time for God's people to wake up. Amen? I don't want to be woke. I want to be awake. Come on. I don't want to be woke. I want to be awake. Amen? I want to be awake and aware of what's going on. Why does this happen? Pastor David, this, this, why, why would they turn on their own thing? Why would, I mean, ten kingdoms, they turn on, they, they, they hate her. They make her miserable. They eat her flesh. They burn her. Verse 17 and 18 says this, For God put it in their hearts to fulfill His purpose. To be of one mind to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. It's revealed to John as well as to us that the entire time, though it may look bleak, though everything may look lost, though everything looks horrible, God is still in control. Amen? Listen, God puts into their hearts His purpose. He gives them one mind to do His will according to His timeline. One commentary said, God will ordain the political support of these ten kings 
for the Antichrist. God will give the world just what it wants. Godless religion and godless rulers. He will give them over to themselves. Now, we see that this, uh, most theologians say that this happens right around three and a half years. That's the first Babylon. From the start until the middle, we have the first Babylon, but there is a second Babylon. That second Babylon will take place around the mid of the tribulation, and what we see is that it will go on to the end of tribulation, and we will look at that in two weeks. Stand with me this morning, will you? Stay tuned, somebody said. Same bat time, same bat channel. If you're old enough to remember what that is, some some of the kids are like, what? How many of you saw the old Batman? Every time at the end of the show, they say, come back next week, same bat time, same bat channel. I'm not that old, but Doreen knows what I'm talking about, right, Doreen? Praise the Lord. Amen. Hey, how many, how many glad to be here this morning? I'm glad to be among family. I'm glad for those who are online for you to join us. We thank you for joining us. We have had, man, we've had just, man, Holy Spirit's been here this morning just in the service, in the worship, in the message, and I believe that uh, he will be a, a, among us during our business meeting. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the message. I thank you for the opportunity we had this morning to come and worship you, to lift our hands, to lift our voices. Lord, I pray that your word in our hearts would stay there. Lord, that we would focus on it, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. Lord, cause us to think of what you have planned. Cause us to think of how you are in control, even when things seem lost, even when things seem bleak. Lord, I pray over those who are here this morning. Lord, I thank you that we are among believers during this strange season that we're living in, strange time that we're living in as a world and as a nation. We have the freedom to come to a building to worship you, to hear your word, to take it and take it into our schools and our jobs and to our loved ones. Lord, we are not unaware of what is happening behind the scenes. And we are fully aware that the rights we have today may not be the rights we have a year or years from now. And so, Lord, we cherish this time together. Lord, I thank you for those here who are here. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would keep them. I pray that you would cause your face to shine down upon them. And Lord, I pray that you would give us rest. In Jesus' name, amen.